Hello, and thank you for joining me today for our episode of Big Ideas in Eating Disorders. In this series, we hear from pioneers in the field of eating disorders who are part of building our modern day foundation of our field. I'm Kathy Pike, clinical psychologist and professor at Columbia University. I'm the host of Big Ideas in Eating Disorders, and I'm pleased to be collaborating with a wide range of uh, eating disorder communities and organizations on this series. Our goal is to capture the narrative history of our field uh, from those who were the pioneers who shaped it, uh, who built the modern foundation of our understanding of eating disorders. Uh, in this series, leaders who were there at the beginning, sharing with us their personal and professional journeys, their experiences, reflections, and ideas that never quite get represented in this way in the standard academic publications. We hope that these conversations will provide a continuity from generation to generation of scholars working in the field of eating disorders and bring insights and guidance that will inspire new and next generations of researchers in working to advance the science and discovery that we need related to eating disorders. I had the good fortune of uh, training with and being mentored by a number of the experts who are joining us for this series, including today's guest, uh, Dr. Tim Walsh. Dr. Walsh graduated from Princeton University and Harvard Medical School. He established the Eating Disorders Research Program at New York State Psychiatric Institute, Columbia University, and he is the Ruane Professor of Psychiatry at Columbia. Over the course of his career, Tim has published hundreds of papers and received numerous grant awards from the National Institutes of Health. He has served on both the Academy for Eating Disorders as president and as president of the Eating Disorders Research Society. And he has chaired the Eating Disorders Work Group for both DSM-4 and DSM-5. Dr. Walsh leads with integrity, clarity of purpose, intelligence, curiosity, and fairness. I'm sure that will all be on full display as we talk today. He has scholarship that really runs the gamut, uh, breadth and depth from biological studies to clinical treatment studies, from diagnostic classification to brain behavior, models of risk, and more. So we could speak on a number of big ideas in eating disorders, but in the spirit of this series, we've asked uh, each of our guests to really hone in on one idea. And we'll get to that. Uh, but first, I'd like to start by uh, welcoming you, Tim, and yeah. uh, starting at the beginning, uh, getting an idea of what got you interested first in medicine, and then in psychiatry, and then in eating disorders. <laughs> so medicine ran in the family, uh, runs in the family. Uh, my father was a cardiologist, actually one of the first cardiologists in Washington, D.C. They were just inventing cardiology when he started. Uh, my mother was a secretary. Um, so I always liked science. Um, I majored in chemistry. Um, and so medicine was a pretty logical next step. And it was a profession I knew something about and had a bunch of appeals being scientific, helping other people. And I, it's not, uh, it's appropriate to mention that in addition, when I graduated college, the Vietnam War was on and 
going to medical school preserved my draft deferment. Mm-hmm. Um, so if I needed a little nudge to go to med school as opposed to some PhD program in chemistry, um, I went to med school. All right, so I went to med school. I didn't know uh, exactly where I wanted to go. I took a year off in med school, as did a number of my classmates, um, to do a year of research. And the research I did was in um, neurophysiology. We're doing basic neurophysiology recording from neurons. And it taught me a lot about how good research is done because it was a good lab that I was, I was located in. So I got out of med school, um, did a straight medical internship back in the days when they were internships. Mm-hmm. Um, but in at the end of the internship, I took an elective in psychiatry and was really taken by how interesting it is and was. The, I, what I re- this, a specific thing I remember, the patient is a bit vague. I think it was a young man at the VA hospital. But he was interviewed, a small group interview, by the chair of the department, uh, who was Peter Wybrow, uh, uh-huh. who was chair at Dartmouth, uh, which is where I did my internship. So mm-hmm. a very distinguished psychiatrist. And he interviewed this fellow who was having some kind of trouble thinking about what to do with a non-healing lesion on his leg. And I was just struck by how interesting it all was, Mm -hmm. but decided after that elective that I wanted to apply to psychiatry. And that's what I did the following year. Mm -hmm. I started psychiatric residency, you know, a year later. Mm -hmm. Still at Dartmouth? No, ma'am. At the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. In the uh-huh. Bronx. In, in the Bronx. In the Bronx. In the Bronx. Uh-huh. Highlights from that time? Well, it was that that was interesting in a bunch of ways. It came to New York. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Einstein was, uh, at least arguably, the premier um, academic psychiatry program in the city in New York. And there were, you know, there were then and there are now a bunch of impressive programs. But Einstein was one of the best. It had a long psychoanalytic tradition, um, but had just been taken over as chairman by the fellow named Ed Sacker, who was Mm -hmm. a strong proponent of biological perspective in psychiatry. Mm -hmm. So it was was an interesting time and a great program to train in because you got exposed both to the the, um, interesting psychoanalytic approaches and the, uh, you know, really taught how to talk to patients, mm-hmm. but also to cutting edge. Uh, and that really was, so it seems primitive now, but was cutting edge uh, biological research. And so both mm-hmm. were going on at Einstein during my residency. So it was, uh, uh, it was a good pick. Yeah. So when you were at Einstein, did you see anyone who had an eating disorder or when not, did eating not until not until my last year? I mean, uh-huh. I, and that was probably 1970. I could work it out, but around 76. That was probably mm-hmm. 1976, maybe 77. What did it what did a unit um, focused on eating disorders look like? So what the- what they did, and this was following Ed Sacker's work, what Ed Sacker did. There was no way to image the brain in any constructive way 40, 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. So what the angle that he and many others were taking back then was what was called the neuroendocrine window on the brain. We, you know, since the control of a lot of hormones 
and the circulating your bloodstream um, are governed by hormones released by the brain, mm-hmm. which controls the pituitary, which controls mm-hmm. the like, adrenal gland. So you can get it. You can get an indirect picture. This is the thinking of what's going on on the brain by measuring peripheral hormones. So Sacker's work demonstrated that folks with serious depression have elevated levels of cortisol. And this um, was evidence that they've got a sufficiently profound biological disturbance in their brain that they're pushing up the level of secretion of cortisol. Uh-huh. Um, and that, that was a big deal. It's that a big was deal. The, the only way, one of the few ways you could get a look at what's going on in the brain. Yeah. And so they had also had a program on eating disorders, anorexia nervosa, mm-hmm. to track reproductive hormones, which, you know, uh, obviously sort of well known are disrupted in anorexia nervosa because almost no woman with anorexia nervosa menstruates. So they were looking at the underlying biology of that. Again, this is a hormone system that inevitably is controlled by the brain. So they were starting to map um, pictures of the secretion of what they looked at actually was pituitary hormones, which are controlled by the brain, whose release is controlled by the brain, the release of pituitary hormones that control the ovaries in women with uh, anorexia nervosa. And what they proved or demonstrated was that in anorexia nervosa, the pattern of hormone release over 24 hours um, resembles that of pubertal or prepubertal girls. So mm-hmm. there's this fascinating biological regression uh, mm-hmm. that women who have, you know, adolescent girls who have passed through through puberty um, revert to a pubertal or prepubertal pattern of hormone release. And that was fascinating. And again, it shows, it shows brain. It shows the brain's getting disturbed in this illness for some reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I focused on was what Sacker had focused on in depression. I looked at cortisol production. And mm-hmm. then this is more complicated. This is a more complicated story, but basically we were able to demonstrate the cortisol production was up in anorexia nervosa too. Uh-huh. And the other thing that happened while I was at Montefiore, um, and I, I left there in 79 and came to Columbia, people with bulimia started to show up. Right. Um, and so, and we started to see them. So we'd say some person would apply. I don't know how we advertise the research, but some person would apply for the research program. We interview them and their weights are normal. They still got the same kind of concerns and they're, of shape and weight, and they're binge eating and vomiting. Right. What is this? This had really not been clearly described in modern days as a syndrome. Mm-hmm. So we started seeing these folks too, as did Gerald Russell in England, right. who, yeah. who, in, who in 1979 um, wrote the paper and coined the term bulimia nervosa. Right. So, so basically, I had the good luck to arrive on the scene just when bulimia was becoming prominent in uh, the eating disorders and more generally in, in the, in the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, here's, here's, you, you want big ideas. You want a theme. Yeah. So I've really had a, a foot in two paths. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, hopefully we're parallel. 
One was mechanism. What's going on? How do we understand this? I mean, I was a chem major. There are, you know, mm-hmm. there, there are mechanisms that underlie how molecules are built and stay together. Mm-hmm. And, and that's how medicine um, thinks. Pathophysiology. What's the mechanism of disease? What, what exactly are the underlying things that go amiss that account for someone's illness? Mm-hmm. And having landed in the psychopharmacology unit, the folks there, like Sandy Glassman, said, you know, this, this eating disorder stuff is interesting. You know, this stuff is, you know, yeah, this is weird. But, um, but these guys are depressed. Um, mm-hmm. uh, don't you think it would be interesting to see if antidepressants might be helpful? Mm-hmm. And antidepressants were the stock and trade of this unit. I mean, this is world-renowned psychopharm. And so soon after I arrived, relatively soon after, we initiated a study treating folks with bulimia, not anorexia, but bulimia with uh, antidepressants. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is the folks up at McLean Hospital in Boston independently were on a parallel track. Uh-huh. Um, and they did a study at almost the same time of tricyclic antidepressants, also demonstrating that they work better than placebo. Mm-hmm. And so those two investigations, I think, were the basis for the development of psychopharmacology of bulimia. That's right. Um, so you, uh, you're already making headway in terms of psychopharmacology and psychotherapy strategies related to bulimia nervosa. We're seeing benefits, but you and, and you're, as you're evolving uh, big idea, the other piece is, yeah, but how is this happening? What's the mechanism? Right. You get to Dr. Kisilev and where does that go in terms but, of so eating? Harry, he became interested in the study of uh, eating behavior. It was attached mm-hmm. to an obesity research center, a very prominent obesity research center at St. Luke's Roosevelt. Um, and so he had developed ideas and methods for how you study eating behavior. And this was right at the beginning, again, of the appearance of bulimia. Mm-hmm. And people had all kinds of theories about what was wrong with these folks and their eating, including you, you may be old enough to remember, uh, carbohydrate craving. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a theory that people would consume carbohydrates and you can make up a biochemical explanation if you take a lot of carbohydrate, what that will lead to is some chemical changes for uptake of stuff into your brain of amino acids, which will lead to more, more serotonin. So the idea was people would binge on carbohydrates to up their serotonin levels and therefore feel better in some way, shape or form. So we said, well, let's see what they eat. Um, so with Harry, we invited people with bulimia, if they were comfortable, to come to the lab, give them a buffet, and say, look, if you can do at home what, um, if you can do here what you do at home, that is binge eat, please go for it. We're, just, we, we're trying to understand what's going on here. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also said, uh, we also like you to eat a meal where you don't binge, just to feel under control. So we did that, and we found that what people eat People with bulimia clearly eat a lot more. Meaning, mm-hmm. and we clearly demonstrated, in case anybody had any doubts, that folks who are binge eating eat a lot more food than normal folks do when asked to overeat. So, bang, we already have nailed down this is a disturbance in eating behavior. 
There's no, this isn't just in someone's head. This is in their right. behavior. So that's worth documenting. Um, we also documented, they're not eating just carbohydrate. If you, if you binged on carbohydrate, you'd binge on orange juice and grapes. That's mm -hmm. pure carbohydrate. They're binge eating on the kinds of foods almost everybody likes to eat, which are sweet fat foods, dessert mm -hmm. kind of foods. Mm -hmm. And that's the foods they tend to lean towards when they're binge eating. Mm -hmm. So that helped throw some cold water on the um, idea that it was um, carbohydrate craving. It's not just carbohydrate. Mm -hmm. So I became trained by Harry Kisseleff in the value of knowing what people are actually eating, not just mm -hmm. what they tell you they eat. Mm -hmm. um, it turns out you can ask folks with anorexia nervosa to eat, you know, no, no controls, you eat whatever you want, and you can learn a lot about what's wrong with their eating. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you can demonstrate, for example, that what's really different about it is they just avoid fat. Now, again, clinicians all know that, but you can measure it and, mm -hmm. and really clinch it. So it's an objective abnormality eating behavior. The percent of calories obtained from fat is way low in folks with anorexia nervosa. Um, it predicts outcome. Mm -hmm. um, that is low when we discharge folks from the hospital who are normal weight. If they're still choosing few calories from fat, they won't do as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so we can demonstrate it's a critical behavioral disturbance, critical to course of illness. As you think about these pieces, and there's so many other things that you've done, Tim, in terms of leading the DSM and the classification and more about psychopharm, but if we zero in here, I'm wondering if that takes us to how you think about a particular, this big idea that you want to focus on and that you're focusing on today. What happened 10, 15 years ago is we were starting to notice how bad we were at getting folks with anorexia nervosa to change their behavior, their eating mm -hmm. behavior. We had also noticed that meds you'd expect to work, like fluoxetine, don't work. And mm -hmm. the, the group at Columbia, these studies led by your, your our friend Evelyn Atia, that fluoxetine is pretty much worthless for anorexia nervosa, which comes as enormous supplies, surprise, because it works for bulimia. Mm -hmm. So why don't why don't our behavioral treatments take better? Why don't mm -hmm. our psychopharm methods that we'd expect to work, why don't they work better? We're not, we're, we're missing some. And so I started thinking more about the way people learn behavior um, and animals learn to engage in behavior and in behavior that becomes persistent. So again, the, the, the idea of looking at mechanism led me to the importance of studying eating behavior. Focusing on eating behavior proved it ain't changing. Mm -hmm. So how do we understand how behavior develops and becomes persistent? So I did a, for me, deep dive um, into cognitive neuroscience and the mechanisms by which new behaviors are learned and become persistent. Mm -hmm. And um, it turns out that people and animals pick up new behaviors if it's rewarding. You do something, you like the result, yeah, I'll do that again. Um, mm -hmm. So that's how we all pick up new behaviors. If it feels good, we'll do it again. Mm -hmm. okay. But then if we do it the next time, 
and it's not rewarding, you don't get the same good result or $10 or whatever it was that was rewarding, you'll kind of drop doing it. You'll do it occasionally, but not very often. But if there is some persistent reward, even if it's intermittent, if, if most of the time or a good bit of the time that you engage in this behavior and it feels good, you keep doing it mm-hmm. and it starts to become a habit. And the definition of a habit is you keep doing it even though it's no longer as rewarding as it used to be or rewarding mm-hmm. at all. And this is a very powerful mechanism built into the brain mm-hmm. of, of animals and humans. Mm-hmm. So the hypothesis is after anorexia nervosa develops and has lasted for a while, the habitual dieting behavior becomes persistent and engages brain mechanisms um, that are different than the mechanisms normal folks use when they decide what to eat. Mm-hmm. And we have data now that when people with anorexia nervosa make a choice of what to eat, uh, the different part of the brain lights up than the part that lights up in normal folk um, or mm-hmm. lights up uh, more intensely than in normal folk. We have mm-hmm. data that the longer the illness persists, um, the more habitual it feels to the person when they rate how habitual a behavior is. People have been doing it longer. They could rate it as more habitual. Mm-hmm. So it remains, I think, a promising hypothesis helped us help explain a bunch of things, including why fluoxetine doesn't work. Fluoxetine mm-hmm. doesn't treat habits. It's a big idea and, a, and an idea that links anorexia nervosa potentially to other conditions, right? That would be a really interesting question, whether there's a similar brain adaptation that occurs in other conditions where habits endure uh, in a way that becomes, you know, defined as a disorder. You know, it's so amazing to hear the, the arc of this journey, the, 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 storyline here and what you were able to measure when you started out in your career and the technology, the evolution of technology that actually now gives you a real view of the brain functionally in a way that was absolutely not accessible a few decades ago. And I I would, I would add to that. And it's married to cognitive neuroscience. Uh Um, Right. uh, So to combine you know, what we've learned about disturbances in eating behavior with what cognitive neuroscientists have learned about how behavior uh, is controlled mm-hmm. um, is a potentially powerful wedge um, right. to help us, you know, do better with these things. But I mean, I'll, I'll say, uh, and I'm along for the ride on this one, but um, so for example, NIH, uh, as you well know, doctor, uh, put out a um, request for proposals to do preliminary work um, to develop new treatments to reduce relapse uh, among uh, acutely treated folks with anorexia nervosa. And they mentioned in the in the RFA in the request for applications, you know, you got to come up with some sort of theoretical model. You got to be based on something. And they mentioned a bunch of things and included habit. Mm-hmm. habit-centered model. So this idea got far enough for somebody at NIH to think it's worth at least mentioning in passing. Uh-huh. 
and our group at Columbia, led by um, uh, Joanna Steinglass and uh, uh, the aforementioned Evelyn Atia, uh, they, like you, um, mm -hmm. have a, a, a grant now going to use the habit-based understanding to develop treatments, hopefully to build treatments that will more be more successful at mm -hmm. helping people maintain a normal eating behavior after their discharge from acute care. So this, you know, it's, it's had legs. Yeah, you know, the interesting thing about that observation also from our work on relapse and recovery post-hospital mm -hmm. care is that we know that individuals with anorexia nervosa can change their behavior, right? Because yes. they have to change their behavior in order to weight, gain weight. So what's interesting about this is separating the behavior change from the habit, Yeah. right? Understanding that actually the, the behavioral change is has been demonstrated. The capacity for the behavioral sure. change has been demonstrated. And the question, as you said earlier, is how come it doesn't stick? You Correct. know, what is it that where the habit continues to override this change of behavior that is demonstrated as something that this individual can absolutely do no, with usually. the scaffolding? That is correct. And it's yeah. tough. I mean, <laughs> we all have habits. I mean, yeah. if you start thinking about habits as I have, all you see is habits. I mean, so yeah. much of That's right. behavior is governed by habits. By the way, it makes sense because actually we're, we're really not all that smart. We don't have all that much capacity. <laughs> so the more we can make automatic, the more right. free brain we have left over to worry about something important. It's like working memory space, right? right. That model. Exactly. Exactly. So, so Tim, this is you've been on this extraordinary journey, and you are now really honing in on this idea around uh, persistent behavior habit. How do we link what we see clinically, what we can describe behaviorally, to what is happening in the brain to maintain that? When you started out. Um, is this what you thought you were going to do in your career? Like, are you surprised that you wound up here? Does it actually make complete sense that you wound up here? <laughs> in retrospect, it makes sense. <laughs> right. It's always <laughs> easier to tell this story in reverse, exactly. right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I suppose it's consistent. It's consistent, but not predictable. How's that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, as I described, I think I've always been interested in mechanism. Mm -hmm. um, and as a clinician, always interested in improving treatment for the individuals that I take care of um, uh, and for the field at large to improve methods. Mm -hmm. so, so I don't think it's inconsistent with mm -hmm. where I started. Um, but um, I wouldn't have any idea that learning from Harry Kisseleff how to study eating behavior, yeah. asking people to binge eat in the laboratory, and coming up with a cognitive, cognitive neuroscience-based um, theory of how to understand a facet mm -hmm. of neuroscience. Those details, pff, I wouldn't have had a clue. Mm 
So uh, one of the primary aims of, of these conversations is for us to get your perspective as a pioneer in the field on what you might offer to the next and next generations. And I know, um, I know firsthand what you, your commitment to mentorship is. Uh, I have had the great fortune of, actually it was my first job after completing my uh, PhD and then a one-year postdoc at Yale coming to Columbia and uh, being mentored by you. And so uh, I I have had the, the firsthand benefit that I hope you could share a bit of in terms of what you, um, what I'm going to say is that uh, one of the things that has struck me, Tim, about your leadership in the field is that you have been very careful and systematic in your thinking about what you're observing and what you're learning and knowing what you know and being open to exploring what you don't know. And um, and the other thing that I, I just want to say out loud is you've been an extraordinary mentor to many uh, men and women, but in particular, it strikes me how many women myself included, had our, you know, start in the field under your leadership and your capacity to um, mentor us and be ahead of the times in terms of supporting a real professional career and all the while embracing the reality that we are growing families and uh, you have many virtual grandchildren <laughs> in the community of um, colleagues who studied under you and learned from you. And um, so I want to thank you for that. Uh, but broadly, for those who didn't get, haven't had a chance to work with you firsthand, when you think about advice, guidance for the next generation in advancing the science and in, in supporting the field, what are the things that are your guiding principles? There's some essential ingredients. Um, one is um, curiosity. One is just the the demand, the the impatience with not knowing why, with not knowing more, the mm -hmm. frustration, um, and that that it keeps going on. It, you don't, I don't have to force myself to keep wondering why don't I? Why don't we do this better? Why don't we understand this better? So I think that's got to be as innate. I suppose that's innate because I don't I don't have to force myself to do it. So you got to be curious, got to be skeptical. Um, um, you said it too, and I I um, I I think it's very important to know what little we know mm -hmm. and to be clear on how much we don't know. Um, mm -hmm. After that, I, I think a good bit of it is. You know, circumstantial or, or uh, serendipity. Um, the kind of clinical work that you and I have done, um, you can't do it by yourself. You got to be part of a system, uh, of a group. Um, hopefully, you can find a good group that supports the development of young people mm -hmm. and doesn't claim all the credit for the 
guy or girl um, mm-hmm. at the top um, who really values um, mentorship and the growth of younger colleagues. I don't, I, I don't know what to tell you about that. I think, I mean, I have, I've had the great good fortune to mentor a whole bunch of um, now impressive people, many of them women. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I didn't, that wasn't a plan. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. just, but it's never, I, I, that at that level, I don't think that level of d- distinction, I, it just didn't occur to me that I would treat what some thought of a female different from some thought of a male. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe mm-hmm. I'm kidding myself. Maybe I got some deep biases, but it just never was part of the equation. Mm-hmm. So it's not as though I, treat, I treated women better, I don't think. I hope. <laughs> you know, it didn't treat them. I should have read the same. Mm-hmm. Um, and I enjoy, in a typical academic fashion, I enjoy working with younger people. Mm-hmm. Um, it just is fun. Because, you know, and the younger they get, the more I've got to teach them. You know, then mm-hmm. I really do know things that they don't know. There's uh-huh. a lot that they know that I don't. But, um, you know, I can, really, um, <laughs> the younger, at the junior ends of the spectrum, I really still have things to teach people. And also, you do, you've been around, I mean, this is just me, this isn't advice to people, but I've been around the track enough times that, you know, experience does help. Because, you know, mm-hmm. I've made mistakes and I can tell people not to make them again. But people have to be really compelled by the clinical phenomenon, be curious about it. And, and want to learn and really have a passion for research. And looking back, I mean, again, this is retrospective. It was obvious early in me. My senior thesis in college was published in the Journal of Biological Chemistry with me as the first author and the professor I was working under as the second, and that's it. Mm-hmm. So I started publishing as I left college. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, it's a good predictor. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's, we're back to the best predictor of the future is the past. The people who publish, publish. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. And so if, if, if that's something you, you young person, have already noticed that you like to write, you like to get facts out and to learn facts and to get them out, that is a, a, an important ingredient uh, mm-hmm. of a career in academics and research in particular. What's one thing that you wish you had known when you were starting out in your career? Importance of cognitive neuroscience. Um, (laughs) um, Really, I'm not sure where it was when I was starting out, but I have um, become convinced that um, cognitive neuroscience is sort of the the basic science of um, psychiatric disorders. Mm-hmm. Um, not all of it, and I'm not sure it's true for psychotic disorders, but for a lot of the behavioral disturbances um, and anxiety-related disturbances, um, we really have to, I think now, rely on knowledge that our colleagues doing more basic cognitive neuroscience are, are developing and try to apply that to our uh, to our patients. So I wish so, I'd known, wish I'd known more. <laughs> well, I wonder if what you're describing, you know, you described in the beginning of your career, 
technologies that were just emerging or um, psychopharm strategies that were just emerging. And in some ways, it sounds like maybe you're predicting that the cognitive neuroscience discoveries are going to be very significant in terms of the next wave of learning uh, around. I, I would hope. I would hope. To tell mm-hmm. you the truth, I'm, I'm more skeptical. Ooh, I'm going to get myself in trouble. I'm, I'm um, more skeptical of genetics. Mm-hmm. Not that it isn't wonderful, not that it isn't important, but it's just too friggin' complicated. I mean, mm-hmm. there's so many genes that contribute to complex disorders, mm-hmm. schizophrenia, eating disorders, uh, obesity, um, that I'm not, I mean, it's, it's important work to do. I'm not dismissing mm-hmm. that. But in terms of a clinical researcher trying to make a clinical impact, um, most of those genes don't make much of an impact. Mm-hmm. Um, just the whole collection of 150 of them that uh, really increase your chances. Mm-hmm. So I've, I worry about that. But mm-hmm. I'm a, mm-hmm. I may be an outlier on that one. I also worry about imaging. I think we are still in the infancy of knowing how to take advantage of these wonderful new methods to image the functioning brain. Mm-hmm. So I think if you really want to make progress with the, in, in the clinical treatment of eating disorders, clinical understanding and treatment of eating disorders, I'd stay closer to the clinic um, mm-hmm. and further away from some of these techniques that are continuing to evolve. And, and I, as my bias is cognitive neuroscience because it focuses on behavior. It focuses mm-hmm. on the mechanisms by which brain controls behavior, that that is gonna be relevant no matter what to mm-hmm. disturbances in behavior and eating disorders are defined by disturbances in behavior. So Tim, how about if you share with us uh, one of the biggest successes or one of your greatest satisfactions as you reflect back on your career? Fortunately, there have been a few. I mean, I, I'm, I'm pleased that it's not just one. Um, aside from all the research that I sketched out, which probably as a body is has to be one of my greatest satisfactions that I've been able to continue to make contributions to this field that are significant. I'm not sure they're earth shattering, but they're significant over a over many decades. So that's very it's it's good. I feel good about that. Two other things. One, you already mentioned the um, the ability and the great pleasure and satisfaction of mentoring a whole bunch of uh, younger colleagues. I mean, I think I've kind I've kind of tried to keep track, but I think we're numbering approaching a hundred research assistants. And the other is uh, DSM that mm-hmm. I've led. And that's very satisfying. I don't think we screwed things up, which was <laughs> always the fear that you'd make some horrendous mistake. I think we have managed, uh, and again, with great colleagues, to reflect knowledge in the field, not to create new mm-hmm. diagnoses, but to reflect understanding of diagnoses that the field had developed. Um, and to capture them in useful diagnostic criteria. And so that's so the fact that we're able to do that 
it, it has been a real accomplishment and, and pleasure. Well, we could talk much longer, uh, and there are many other big ideas we could have uh, zeroed in on, but I'm glad that we focused on this one, Tim, this idea around uh, persistent behavior, this idea around habit, around staying close to what we're seeing clinically and getting a deeper and deeper understanding of where the cognitive neuroscience and the brain can help us understand what we're observing is so critical. And it's it takes us to the, the a basic foundational understanding, but also at the same time has immediate clinical application. So enormous potential. Um, you've your career has been stellar and it's just been so fun to talk with you today. And I want to thank you for joining us. And um, that's it. Well, thanks for the honor of being asked to do this. It's um, uh, I'm, I, I, it is a real honor, and I hope some of what I had to say is of interest to somebody. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that will be the case. Thanks so much. Okay. See you, Kathy. Take care. Bye.